Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you tonight. I'm so excited. Elliot Seguin is here. We're going to talk about test flights, so many cool things going on. Before we get started, as always, just a few housekeeping notes. There will be a recording available of tonight's broadcast. It can be found on socialflight.com and the Social Flight mobile apps, as well as on Social Flight's YouTube channel. Just search for Social Flight, one word, you'll be all set there. Um, also, as always, we want to remind you that we created Social Flight in order to support general aviation and to support you. That's the whole point of it. With all of our giveaways, with everything else that we do, we're here to help general aviation. And so with that, we'd like to ask, it's in completely free. Be sure to check out the website at socialflight.com, sign up, and also check out the mobile app because it has tens of thousands of events. It shows shows like this, tons of education, videos, and so many great destinations. We really believe that it is so important to be able to get out there and fly even during the crisis. And that's why we created the Social Flight Live show, because, of course, so many of us are stuck at home. And it's uh, really helpful to be able to see these inspiring stories of people that make general aviation what it is and encourage you to get out there and do flying with safe social distancing as much as you possibly can. We are a fragile community in general aviation, and the ability to get out and support your local FBO, your local airport restaurant, to keep your aircraft airworthy and up to speed. And also, I can't think of a better time to invest in your aircraft than now. You may actually, through that, uh, be uh, not only supporting yourself, but helping save someone's job at a company. And so um, please uh, do that, support everything that you can for general aviation. With that, I would like to begin our show tonight and talk about Elliot Seguin, who is uh, from Wasabi Flight Test. Now, Elliot is uh, just, the best way to describe him is he is all about design, build, and test experimental aircraft. And uh, since 2005, Elliot's been working in the field of research and design of experimental aerospace products. He spent 10 years at Burt Rutan Scaled Composites as a product uh, engineer, a project engineer, excuse me, flight test engineer and test pilot with 300 hours in six types of Rutan experimental aircraft during his tenure. He spent two years as lead test pilot at Mooney Aircraft working on the prototype carbon fiber diesel M10T and has set six world records and built two airplanes for racing at Reno and one of them of his own design. It is hard to imagine a more fascinating day at the office than the ones that Elliot sees on a regular basis. Welcome, Elliot, to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we have to start at the beginning here because you have one of the most fascinating jobs in aviation. And, and you got there at a relatively young age, considering. Tell me a little bit about your background. How, how did you, you know, evolve to the point that you became who you are today? And, uh, and, and maybe how did you land yourself at Rutan Scale Composites? Sure. Uh, well, first off, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, and I appreciate being here. You're talking a lot about general aviation during your intro, and it's certainly something uh, that I'm passionate about. Uh, you talk about uh, how I ended up in Mojave and doing the silly stuff that we do. Uh, it all starts there, right? So I grew up uh, in a flying family. My old man uh, had a, a Swift, and uh, we used to fly it around the airport. And I was pretty sure that uh, there wasn't much difference between a Swift and a you know Mustang or Sea Fury or anything like that. It was pretty much the coolest <laughs> airplane on the planet. Uh, anyway, so it sunk the hook uh, nice and early, and uh, started a, a path towards uh, towards Mojave and towards all that. So uh, yeah, uh, from there it was uh, engineering school, and then uh, out to Mojave. So. What type of engineering did you study? Uh, mechanical engineering. Uh, so uh, most of my time in um, in high school was spent uh, really focused on uh, horsepower production. I worked for a guy uh, building um, 
So he made his money building Fords, uh, the old flathead Fords, but he, he also played with uh, Stearmans and T6s. So he was building 1340s and Continental 220s, and that was the whole reason I was there. So I would spend all day doing the, the car stuff in exchange for getting to do the, uh, the radial engine stuff uh, in the evenings. The, the joke was, uh, you know, I was telling my dad how cool of a job I had. I get to work with radial engines all day. And he's like, you're going to engineering school. You know, it's expensive, but you're excited to be working on these old antiques. You know, Elliot, no one's going to pay you to be an engineer on radial engines. And, you know, there's some, some truth to that. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I got to drag my, my son, Jake, over here. He's, he's going through exactly the, uh, the same thing in terms of like AMP school, just got into UMass engineering, whole thing. And he wants to basically be you, I think. But we'll figure that out. <laughs> well, and, and to be honest, I think. Um, uh, I'm not saying I'm the best engineer, but the best engineers, I think, you know, there's that practical side to it. And if, if you're going through engineering school, the, the awkward thing is you're learning theory, right? And, and that, that difference between the theory and the practical side, right? I mean, if you're interested in the theory itself, then you're going to go study physics or a math major or whatever. Like engineering is about the practical application of those theories. And so that, that, that combination of living between the hardware and the theory is like key to the engineering dilemma and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a, a lot of good engineers struggle with it. Not that I'm a particularly good engineer, but I think a lot of engineers struggle with it. So, so what was the connection then that then landed you after, I assume it's after uh, your mechanical engineering degree, uh, to actually start really wrenching on airplanes and putting your engineering to use? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that moment I talked about with my old man ended up, we'll say it was one conversation. It may have been more than one, but uh, <laughs> Uh, we were just talking a lot about, you know, how do I apply the engineering uh, education to what I was passionate about, which I, I'll joke and say it was round motors and tail draggers, but, you know, the the Reno thing, right? And, and not maybe specifically Reno, but the idea of uh, modifying aircraft for very specific purposes, uh, you know, I couldn't have put it that clearly back then. Um, so so I, I put together a list of the coolest companies I could think of um, and, uh, you know, uh, sent them all letters telling them how cool I thought they were and how I wanted to come help them out. And then you're writing the addresses on the envelopes and you're like, Oh, Mojave, Mojave, <laughs> Mojave. Uh, and it turned out that most of the companies I was uh, interested in working for were all in Mojave. So I got in my cruddy old pickup truck, drove across the country and started banging on doors, trying to figure out how to pay for food while I uh, found a real job. Uh, and that's, that's how the whole thing started. So. So you really did it by driving out there and, and, and putting yourself there as opposed to mailing, mailing in all the, all the opportunities. Yeah, it's, um, I think, uh, maybe compared to other engineers, I probably am better face to face than some engineers, but, but more so Mojave was in this explosive time, right? Um, you know, I graduated uh, college in 2006, uh, spaceship one was what, 2004. Four, right uh global flyer was going around the world while i was trying to get these jobs like there was probably not too many more competitive places on the planet to try to get an engineering job than mojave scaled in particular but really the whole airport right the whole you know a rising tide uh, raises all boats the whole airport was sort of buzzing uh sort of like if you were trying to get into spacex or something like that now or mm. uh, you know, some of those guys in the bay area so it was real competitive and um and the way I set myself apart was uh, with the flying background, the practical stuff, building around motors, and then being willing to, to put myself physically there. So, well, and also just harassing the guys till they would talk. <laughs> so what was your, your, which came first? Was it, was it first doing some of the things on your own with aviation or was that your first job getting into scaled? Uh, so, so no, my first job was not getting into scaled. Uh, scaled wouldn't talk to me. So I started looking, uh, you know, I joke about looking for jobs like it was the end of college. It was actually the year before the end of college. Uh, so I had one summer to go and one year of school to go. And I was trying to set the footprints in that path to figure out how to be full-time at scaled. And scaled wasn't taking interns. And anyway, so I ended up working for two companies on the airport as an intern. One was uh, Nemesis Air Racing, working on the uh, NXT, you know, carbon fiber race plane that was the hottest thing on the planet and um x-core uh, uh rocket engines or x-core aerospace they were they had just done their uh rocket powered long easy at oshkosh and so those were the two internships and it worked out really nice uh, I, i'll say that i planned it but I, i'm not that smart but the um they were on opposite sides of scale on the mojave flight line and my um nemesis uh, internship came with a flight line batch so instead of uh, i would park my car at uh at uh, nemesis in the morning um, X-Core would get started kind of late. And then to go to X-Core, I would walk instead of 
on the parking lot side, I'd walk down the flight line side, which meant I got to look in all the scaled hangers. <laughs> and um, I kept, and this is so nerdy, I shouldn't be telling the story, but I kept a journal like, uh, like this size, but a little smaller of, okay, on the, you know, August 22nd, I met uh, a, a tall uh, man with uh, blonde hair. His name's Corey Bird. He appears to be sort of a big deal. I need to Google him later. Uh, and then, you know, I saw... <laughs> I saw, uh, you know. You're like the best kind of aviation stalker there is. <laughs> right. And, and the trick is to not be sketchy while you do it, which I'm not sure I ended on the right uh, side of that coin every time. But uh, but it was, it, at the end of the day, I mean, those are jokes, but it was hard to get into Mojave, get into Scaled. And, um, you know, uh, it's a big deal. Anytime you, you know, graduate from college, you just have to go out and get a real job. And I'd only been a mechanic professionally before that, you know, working on the round motor. So it was a big step. And I was, it, I cannot believe how fortunate I was uh, that the moment was happening and that I was able to be a part of it. Uh, the, the thing that was happening in Mahasana. So let's show this. I've got, we've got some pictures here during tonight's show that we'll, we can bring up here. This, there's a little enthusiasm here on this X-Core one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I was sort of uh, making jokes earlier about my personality relative to most engineers. I think this sums it up. Those X-Core guys, um, such an impressive group, um, but very much led by a technical mind. Uh, you know, I think a lot of engineering firms are that way, but but XCore very much so. So that's Dan DeLong sitting in the rocket racer. We're doing engine runs. They would do them right out in front of the hangar, uh, which I could only happen at Mojave. The gentleman <laughs> on the canard, uh, his name was James. I don't know his last name. He was a local long easy expert who was in charge of doing the uh, the uh, uh, airframe side of the rocket racer installation. Anyway, so they, uh, you know, I was super stoked to be there and it got to be sort of a running joke that, uh, you know, Elliot wanted to have his picture taken with stuff and wanted to, you know, whatever. So that's the, the moment there where I'm like, can you guys take my picture? And they're like, yeah, with bunny ears, uh, <laughs> well, sums up uh, my experience in a lot and of my just life. To remind, just to make sure for everybody knows, X-Core is the rocket racing that was going on there, right? Right, right. So uh, the, that airplane that I'm pictured with there, a long easy with the rocket motor in the back of it, um, demonstrated at Oshkosh, which I think, I, I'm sure you guys remember, I remember it. It was a big deal when I saw it, uh, with uh, Dick Rattan flying the airplane, which was super cool. That got enough eyeballs that started what was eventually called rocket racing. When I was at X-Corps, uh, I was there actually for the beginning moments of that. So I was with X-Core when we went at Oshkosh to the Velocity booth and pitched to Velocity to buy Velocity airframes and put rocket motors in them. Where that ended up going was uh, two uh, rocket racers were built. X-Core built one. I wasn't a part of the program. Uh, and then Armadillo built another one down in Texas. They both flew many times. I don't think a race was ever demonstrated, but uh, there was, the, you know, the, the program had some legs. And that, that this is the genesis of it here, this uh, long easy with the rocket motor in the back. So if you want an example of the things that, that we lose out in the world misses out on when you don't have an Oshkosh, it's things like a bunch of guys saying, what's the coolest airframe? Well, it's a long easy. Well, what can we do to make it cooler? Let's put a rocket engine on it. Right. And so this, I, you know, we're talking about, sorry, we're talking about how cool um, X-Core is. And I think that's the most important thing about the X-Core deal is, um, yeah, so they're egghead rocket guys. Rocket guys tend to be eggheads, engineers, eggheads. So it's like double egghead. But the most important thing was they recognized that there were a lot of rocket engines out there, rocket engine companies out there. And what would set them apart was flying. Dan had this long easy. Uh, he had it in the back of his hangar and they had a rocket motor that was a, near the right thrust and they put them two together. And now they were the only uh, rocket engine powered airplane flying currently in the United States. The joke is... Um, and I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, apologize to the x people that might be listening if I got it wrong. But the joke is that in the buildup to Spaceship One, uh, nobody knew Spaceship One was happening. That was across the ramp at Scaled, x down the ramp. This thing was flying. Uh, Dick was doing most of the flying. Dick Rattan, Bert's brother, is very close with Mike Melville. They're close buddies. Dick talked the x guys into letting Mike fly the rocket-powered Long Easy. And the joke was that they didn't realize that they were in fact training their competition, right? X-Core and Scaled <laughs> saw themselves, or X-Core saw themselves in competition with Scaled. And by putting Mike in there, they, that was actually his first rocket-powered airplane flight before <laughs> he went through the spaceship. Like, where else in Mojave could a test pilot wander down the ramp to another rocket-powered airplane project, right? Like, <laughs> super cool. Hey, you, you guys got another, uh, we need a part for a rocket engine. Oh, sure, right over there. Yeah, yeah. no problem. There's tons of rocket not, engines. Uh, a rocket zone, uh, auto zone joke. It wasn't funny. Um, pick up some rocket engine parts. Uh, to that point, though, um, 
there's a uh, Ace Hardware in Mojave. It's the best Ace Hardware I've ever been to in my life. And it's because all the aerospace companies, yeah, so they can afford to stock up on all these weird items. I was just, uh, you know, we were talking yesterday when we were setting up for this thing about flying the um, that uh, turbine-powered Thunder Mustang down in Florida. And we had a part break on it, and it was just a little heim joint. It was like a, a number 10 heim joint, something like that. I was like, oh, I'll just run down to Ace Hardware and pick it up. And I'd like it totally... Because in Mojave, you just go down to Ace Hardware and they have, you know, female uh, Heim joints, male Heim joints. They got the ones with off sizes. They got the ones that are the way they're supposed to be the same. Like, oh, wait, nobody has. I think I went to O'Reilly Auto Parts, Lowe's, Home Depot. Uh, there was like a bolt shop. Uh, anyway, and, and the Ace Hardware. And nobody had uh, Heim <laughs> the joints. The only Ace Hardware with male spec parts. Yeah, right. Right. The, only in Mojave. Right. It's a special place. Oh my God! Well, here's here's another one. You said you know, the other the other half of what you were doing there was Nemesis, right? Boy, is there a better looking airplane out there? Uh, yeah. So that's the uh, Nemesis NXT. Um, so the context of the photo that's after setting the three kilometer record at Oshkosh, uh, which was um, you want to talk about moments in my life that set the hook. You know, you grow up uh, reading about uh, Lyle Shelton and Daryl Greenemeyer and you know three kilometer record and what's a three kilometer record and you know tie that back to Doolittle and like all the badass stuff and to be able to be a part of a team setting a three kilometer record. I mean, there was, uh, it was absolutely spectacular. Um, so in, because John is John, he said it at Oshkosh in front of a crowd, which is incredibly, um, it takes a lot of gall to, to attempt that. And he was successful to set the record uh, at Oshkosh. And this is the photo we took as we towed the airplane through Aeroshell Square, just at the gate to Aeroshell Square before we put the airplane away for the night after setting the record. So uh, wow. that's that's pretty rad. So um, other things about that photo, this photo as well, um, the pink cowling was uh, put on after um, the gear incident. So if you go watch Christopher Webb's documentary, have you seen Christopher Webb's documentary? I No, I got to watch that one. It is phenomenal. So Chris Webb, uh, he's a guy out in uh, New York, and he's a great filmmaker, and he was following uh, Jack Cox. You're familiar with Jack Cox? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so Jack Cox, he went to Jack Cox and said, I want to make a movie about airplanes. Is there any cool airplane projects that are going on right now? And Jack said, you got to go check out these guys in Mojave. So he got involved with Nemesis from before the first flight and helped, was there for the beginning or the final construction through first flight, and then the, the documentary goes through uh, the gear collapse, uh, at uh, Reno, and then finally through uh, winning at Reno. The documentary is called uh, Air Racer, uh, Chasing the Dream, I believe is what he called it. Wow. If okay. you watch the documentary, there was a hydraulic failure on the airplane, the gear folded. And uh, we talk about moments where Elliot was luckier than he deserves. One of them was getting into scaled while the Spaceship 2 program was still gearing up. The other one was uh, approaching the Sharps, the Nemesis team, uh, right after the gear collapse. So there was... Um, uh, they they are a world class race team, the best on the planet. And um, at that moment, when the gear collapsed, I would say they were more accessible than they've ever been. And uh, that just happened to be, you know, just a couple months before I reached out to them. And I didn't know that I was just some uh, bum in upstate New York. Anyway, so that made them a, 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 um, uh, give me more more time than they probably should have. And I ended up being there while we did that that paint job. So that pink paint job with the, the new, there's some changes they did to the cowling and to the, the, the whole front of the airplane that I got to be there for. And to be, so to be there for sort of a pivotal moment as you watch an airplane that's going to go do a very focused thing, something that I've ended up dedicating my life to, um, to be there for the pieces coming together and making this stuff happen was uh, so fortunate. And, uh, and a, state, uh, a big thing about EAA, a big thing about Mojave, and a big thing about Nemesis. Am I rambling yet? Is this uh no? My <laughs> this is what this show is, by the way. So okay, get okay. you know, buckle your seatbelt. This is exactly what we're. <laughs> so uh, all right, so you've got you've got Nemesis now un under your belt, spending time there. You've got Excore. You've already strapped rockets, to long EZs, and is, is was that the combination that took you to the next step then? Uh, so after that summer, you know, I had my notebook, uh, every time a, uh, Draken took off from the test pilot school and there was a zero flu while I was there, it was like abandoned on the airplane. Anyway, I had my little notebook and I, the hook was sunk. Um, but 
uh, a big thing you know, I, I mentioned, I went to mechanical engineering school cause I was interested in horsepower generation being there and seeing the experimental thing. They realized like the airframe side might be more interesting than the, uh, the engine side. So that was when I sort of made the decision that like I had been interested in scale, but I needed to really focus on scale. So when I left after the end of that summer, I spent the whole following year just focused on getting scaled attention. And it was a really scary time for my having all your eggs in one basket um, situation. I was talking to other companies, but nowhere near as aggressively as I was talking to scale. Um, to that point, I had a list of engineers at scale that I would call every Monday morning. Um, and, <laughs> and the best part about that is I didn't find out till later that they sat all in the same room. So like, so one put in, and then the next one would answer. And go like, it, it's Elliot. Hold on. Yeah. Who do you want to talk to next? <laughs> Uh, exactly. Uh, anyway, so I did that for, uh, you know, the better part of a year until uh, I got the offer letter the day that I graduated and I drove back out to Mojave and started my career, uh, at scale. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's that. So they, so they hired you so that you would stop calling them. That's right. And, just, and then they got to see what your skills were. <laughs> they were, uh, short on, uh, on, uh, floor sweepers. Sorry that, that, so we just put a guy up in a CPU that's never flown in a CPU before. He's just, they just landed and they're just coming in. So if I'm a distracted, I apologize. Uh, but yes, they were, uh, they were short on floor sweepers. So they let me uh, help out with that. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's show, cause this isn't, this is no, no small feat of uh, some of the things that you did, that you did there. Here's, we got a few pictures that may be in or out of order. <laughs> So uh, I think of um, of all the projects I got to work on there, uh, the the white knight stuff is the stuff I'm most proud of. So that's um, that's one of the only a handful of times um, in the history of that airplane that it flew with three people on board. So the three of us in uh, pickle suits all flew that day. Ended up being uh, two successive presidents of the company on my left shoulder there. Uh, one was flying the airplane, the other was sitting next to me in the back. Behind us is a payload that you can't really see, and it's a good thing because I can't talk a whole lot about it. But uh, White Knight is just a really special airplane, right? I mean, it's uh, designed for a very specific topic. Uh, how's the sound? Are we getting a lot of uh, side? Uh, you're good. You're good. Okay. I mean, it's a really weird airplane, right? So it was designed specifically to carry the spaceship. So you see that whole geometry is set up. I mean, you can see the ladder behind me. It takes a ladder like a, a serious ladder just to get in the cockpit. So like from a bailout standpoint, there's a rope ladder in the airplane in case you have to, you know, if the engine's on fire, you come to a stop on the runway so you can throw the rope ladder out and get down the airplane before the fire trucks get there. So anyway, it's a really weird airplane. Uh, it's weird because it was designed for a really specific purpose. I wasn't there for the Spaceship One stuff, but I was there when we figured out how to make money with the airplane. So we did several payloads uh, for different types of customers, hanging stuff off the bottom, right? So fundamentally, that whole geometry is about being able to fit a spaceship underneath the fuselage. But when the spaceship goes away to the museum, there's still a big space there. We actually flew with a vertically mounted wing under the airplane where you would put beta on the airplane in order to put alpha on the wing. And then we could study the wing almost like a flying wind tunnel. That's just one example of program. But the, the other side is, right, the airplane was designed um, – I mean, it's a, it's a big compromise. It was all designed um, to be to, to require as little engineering as possible. So everything on it is stolen uh, from another airplane. So this is a great photo. Thanks for putting that up. If you recognize the front of the airplane is the front of Spaceship One, right? So, right? so why does it have three seats? It has three seats because Spaceship One, in order to win the XPRIZE, had to take two passengers to space. So there's two seats behind the pilot, right? And so then you're like, well, that seat or that hole in the, the side of the airplane where you get in is like awkwardly behind the pilot seat. Well, that's because the uh, initial plan was to use the nose for ingress, egress. That ended up changing. But that oh, whole nose okay. is removable. So you see there's like a big seam there. It opens yeah. like a bank vault and it turns like five or ten degrees and then the whole nose falls off. You're like, well, wow. this is a big, slow flying. Well, it's not for the mothership, right? It's for the spaceship. Right. So right. if in the event that the spaceship uh, on going out of the atmosphere or coming back in the atmosphere was tumbling in any axis. Right. You could effectively just uh, make the front of the airplane disappear. And all you'd have to do is unbuckle your seatbelt and you would be projected out the front of the airplane. Doesn't oh, make God. sense for a mothership, but makes a lot of sense for the spaceship. Right. Uh, the joke I always made that was that, uh, you know, we we'd do stuff in the airplane and you're, you're young. And you're trying to figure out how much risk you're taking on a given day. Um, and the concern was that if something happened, right, if there was a fire or, or something terrible, that uh, my front seater, because I was in the back, the front seater would just do that. He would just open the nose and bail out, right? 
and I would have to climb around his seat to awkwardly get out. I said, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to fly the airplane for a second. You know, you just put my hand on the <laughs> stick, right? I logged point one, damn it, on the way out the door. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you have to get uh, that somehow. Uh, if you don't mind going back, don't go back to that uh, photo for just another second. Uh, yeah. The motors are uh, afterburning J85s out of a T38. Doesn't make wow. sense to put afterburners or really um, low bypass turbojets on an airplane that flies at 150 knots, right? Well, they were right. that like that because the you know the rumor is that uh, Bert found them on eBay and the the deal was so good he couldn't turn them down. And say, so, well, okay, but but if you're going to plan on flying the airplane in burner all day, you're going to have like a serious fuel flow problem. Well, that's why the thing is a flying fuel tank. If you go back to the previous photo. Uh, yeah, so right above, see the first guy in red, um, right above his head, from there in the wing all the way to the wing tip is gas. Oh, God. <laughs> from the spar <laughs> forward. And they uh, Bert, uh, specifically put the spar further back in the wing so that there would be more fuel forward of the spar just to deal with this problem that we got really cheap engines. So we're going to design the whole airplane to deal with those compromises. And then, that is... Don't they say that like all, all aircraft are designed around the engine? So there you go. Like <laughs> there you go. So it's it's actually very common what what happened. Uh, anyway, uh, the if you look at that same photo, uh, the gear you can see the gear on the right side. Uh, the uh, gear was uh, pneumatic, uh, extended via pneumatic actuators. The pneumatic actuators were the same pneumatic actuators that feathered the feather on the spaceship. So it was a way to get cycles on those systems before the spaceship existed. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. The um, if you that inboard section of the wing between the boom and the fuselage is a there's a spoiler that runs the full trailing edge. It's uh, maybe uh, probably 18 inches uh, in court and runs. To, well, there's two sets of them, but they basically run from the center boom to the uh, uh, to the outer boom. There's a lot of drag there, and there's a lot of drag there so that you could actually fly spaceship approaches in the mothership. Oh, just to practice. Just to practice, right? So uh, to that topic, uh, Melville took his uh, long easy and he put decals on the inside of the canopy. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, put decals on the inside of the canopy with the same porthole design to try to practice flying out of the spaceship before the spaceship exists, right? Because flying out of portholes, like, what's the risk there? I don't know. And it's a very scaled uh, solution to put just put decals on my long easy. It's even more a scaled solution to say, let's just make the mothership a lot like the spaceship and then we'll set up the mothership so we can fly the approaches, right? I mean, <laughs> It's very Bert. It's very cool, uh, and uh, I'll quit rambling about White Knight. But it's a it's no a way. Super that's that's fascinating info. I never never knew that, and it's amazing, and it makes so much sense. Uh, everything except for maybe the eBay part, but everything else, right? That led after it, like reusing everything that you can on. That's fascinating. It's it's uh, such a cool airplane, and to be able to, you know, build it for one customer and be able to find work for it with other customers is uh, it was cool to be a part of it. Well, that, as you mentioned earlier, just about, the, the, I guess, the vast majority of the, the work that you do is on very, very purpose-built aircraft. Right, right. And, and uh, somebody was talking about uh, Bert's genius and that, uh, you know, everybody talks about Bert's ability to, to solve interesting uh, des uh, design problems with cool configurations, et cetera. And the joke we always had at scale was what Bert was really good at was finding a mission that allowed him to come up with a really weird configuration. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, too. So now we have the uh, next one from Scaled. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, Proteus uh, flying a, uh, a monster pod that we flew for a long time at Proteus. This was the first time I flew uh, for Scale, the first time I ever flew for work, actually. Um, that program, we were running up to the 50,000 uh, foot range, uh, run up to the 50,000 foot range, and we were pretending to be uh, a global hawk. So that, that pod had... Uh, was uh, destined for the Global Hawk, and it was cheaper to run a Proteus than to run a Global Hawk. So we would go up and fly racetracks in the uh, restricted areas over Edwards, and they would pretend we were a Global Hawk, and they'd move stuff around on the ground, and we'd point stuff at it. Um, anyway, but it's a great example of uh, you know what the airplane was designed for. Uh, Proteus was designed to, as a high-altitude relay uh, communications relay point. So it was designed to hang out for you know, 10, 15 hours uh, up at super high altitude. So this was very similar to that. Uh, you know, your first flying job is at above 50,000 feet flying for, you know, eight hour, nine hour sorties. Uh, only in Proteus is that possible. <laughs> uh, anyway. Wow. Um, That's fascinating. So now, now tell me a little bit, how did you move from, you were moved from product and uh, project engineer, flight test engineer, and then all the way up to test pilot. And, and of course that's where the focus of most of your time is now. Um, 
and and obviously you've got a really strong grasp from your background on the work that they are doing as a test on the, the things you're testing the understanding of the science behind it and what they're actually trying to do so what was it like going through that progression yeah i think there's two parts to that question one is you sort of what is the t typical path to the test pilot role and the other is um you know how does elliot get the hook sunk to uh to overly focus on such a narrow career path uh so we'll start with uh with my narrow career path. I think, um, you know, just like we were talking about earlier, that blend between uh, practical and theoretical, right? Uh, the cool thing about flight test is it draws you even more so uh, to, the, to, the, to the center of the Venn diagrams, right? To what really matters, right? So we talk about uh, design, build, test, like, or it's really design, build, test, operate. And if your operate doesn't work, then your design was terrible. And so, in order to understand how to design, you have to understand the other phases. And that was the, something I hadn't really been exposed to until working at scale. Um, you know, working as a mechanic, you're sort of stuck in that last phase where you just hate the, the engineer for giving you a cruddy thing that's hard to work on. Uh, it's not till you've been through the cycle that you understand, you know, how the, how it, the fog of war makes it hard to see uh, the problems that are actually going to be a problem when you uh, come down the line. And so that was the, the most rewarding thing about being at scaled was going through that process quickly. Um, you know, there was a time back in, uh, you know, we were just talking about the Sea Fury out in the hangar. Uh, Sydney Cam designed the, the Hawker Sea Fury. He designed, what, 30, 40 airplanes in his career? Kelly, wow. right around the same number. And there aren't people that design at that rate besides Bert uh, in the last 20, 30 years. And the, so that makes, that's the most special thing about scale is that, there's been so many airplanes that have happened on the same patch of ground. And what that means is that there's a lot of lessons learned that, you know, we joke about them hanging in the, in the eaves, but uh, otherwise you would have to travel all around between companies to be able to get that, to go through that cycle, design, build, test, design, build, test, design, build, test, which is where you learn, right? It's not until you under, see it fail that you understand how you could have designed it better. And uh, being there and watching that process um, uh, was, was a game changer uh, for me. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and helped me understand that uh, that was what I wanted to dedicate uh, my life to. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was interesting uh, about Scaled is it was test pilot focused. Um, I, I don't want to make assumptions about uh, Bert, but, you know, Bert, Bert and his brother were, I think, competitive. You know, they're both two young guys interested in aviation. Uh, Dick went off and joined the Air Force and was a badass fighter pilot, and Bert was the egghead engineer who went to, you know, ended up at Edwards uh, as a flight test engineer. And I think I think in some ways, besides Bert's desire to just build lots and lots and lots and lots of airplanes, there was always a want to be a test pilot thing in there. And I think in the early years of scale, that's why he took such an active role in flight tests. But what that meant is as an organization, the organization put test pilots very high uh, in the structure. A lot of yeah. companies put, put the test pilot in a quality control side, right? right? So, it's, so it's separate from engineering and it's, they're almost like a nuisance, right? Because mm -hmm. their job is to figure out if your design works and therefore they're kind of in the way. Uh, at scale, the test pilots were, I mean, and it goes back to Melville being best friends with Bert. I mean, they were best friends and uh, Mike did the majority of the, the high risk flying for scale. And so that, that, that dynamic meant that not only was flight test probably interesting to me personally, but it was also the top of the tree that I happened to be living on that makes any mm -hmm. sense, which makes yeah. it easier to sort of drive your career that way. So once you make the decision that you want to be a test pilot, there's um, the question is, how do you get there? Right. And I think that's maybe the other part of the question that we're asking. If you were to go to a test pilot school and ask them that question, they would say there's basically two paths. Uh, one is you go be a, join the military, you become a fighter pilot, you get your thousand hours, 2000 hours and vipers, and then you convince them to send you to test pilot school. So it costs about two Two million bucks to make a fighter pilot. Let's assume while he's you know doing his two thousand hours of flying for work that that's recovering the cost. But then there's another million or two to go to test pilot school. So it's like four million. The government's investing in you to make you in a military test pilot. I'm not saying that it's not worth it. I don't mean to comment on the budget. I just mean to comment on the other side, which is when you're trying to compete with those guys on the civvy side, which is where I end up. The civvy path is to. Um, Typically, you join a, a, a team as an engineer, and then you work your way uh, from the sort of a design role into sort of a, a observing the test of the thing that you design in a flight test engineer role. And then uh, typically on a time scale of seven to 10 years, you make the slide over from right seat to left seat or back seat to front seat, however you want to think about it. And uh, um, in my experience, those testers are the most valuable. 
The problem is that because the uh, scaled operation is so unique, most of the guys that come up that way are on a very narrow range of products, right? So if you came up at Cessna, you probably came up in either the single engine wing or the multi-engine wing, or you came up in the jets, you're going to be there. You're going to be in single motor Cessnas and you're going to be, you're going to be awesome, right? But if you were to step out of that and you were to go look for a job, besides going over to the across the street to Piper, right? There's not, you're not really, your skills aren't really applicable. Right. Uh, and so that's the risk of, uh, of, of the engineer career path. In some ways that uh, put me at an advantage, in some ways it put me at a disadvantage because our situation was that just as there was a handful of us, right? So am I rambling yet? No. <laughs> okay. No, I apologize. But you know what, what you're saying makes a lot of sense because I mean, I, I've, I've, I've worked at some of those companies. I've worked with the flight test engineers and through that uh, and the, the flight test pilots. And, and I, I do agree. I think it's a shame when some, uh, some companies uh, really view their flight test department as almost like quality control at the very end. Like uh, right. just, you know, we, we know it's going to do all this. We just want you to report back on this. They're not tell really me, Tell involved. me that it's doing the thing I told you it was going to do. Yeah. Yes, exactly. As opposed to like yeah. having them really understand it and give you feedback on the genesis of the product you're making uh, and understand that. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, tell me one thing. I've, I've always wondered, you know, the, the rutan designs, for example, and the scale designs, they're, they're so artistically unique. They're so targeted in what they actually do. It, it, almost makes one wonder how much of a focus there really is on the flyability of it or of the pilot experience of it. Um, tell me about that. Uh, the, uh, the joke is that the scaled airplanes all handle terribly. If you've flown a, a long easy, you might, uh, you might uh, have had that experience personally. Not, not saying a long easy flies terribly, just that if you were to compare it to classical handling qualities, it's not spectacular. Um, yeah. So, uh, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. So I'll just ramble for a while and you like put your hand up when you want me to stop. <laughs> um, one of my favorite things about Bert, uh, and especially after getting to know him is um, number one, the salesmanship, which I think, you know, you talk about Kelly Johnson, uh, there's a salesman or BD, right? These are sales guys. And it takes, it takes a lot of bucks to be Buck Rogers and it takes a lot of dollars to move a program like he moved him. And so I, I don't know that that gets talked about very much, but the other one is like, his intense drive and his intense, you know, I used the word egghead earlier, so we'll keep that on trend. I mean, he's a technical engineer minded person. And so one of my favorite things about being at scaled was um, seeing the early napkin sketches when the configurations being initially hashed out where it's, I know I want a canard. I know I want a pusher. I know I want, you know, tip sales, but the art wasn't added yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, um, uh, for me, that credit always went to a man named Corey Bird, who is currently uh, the president of Scaled, uh, who uh, you know came in uh, with a broom sweeping the floors. And um, I, I, if if anybody knows Corey, I'm not doing him justice, so I'll apologize. But I will summarize by saying the um, the pivotal moment that I see in Corey's path from guy coming in sweeping the floors to president of Scaled engineering design badass is in the middle. He designed and built an airplane called symmetry. And if you Google it, uh, you'll recognize it. The, uh, it's a little yellow airplane with a T T tail on it. And if you look at it, the, uh, the design, you know, it's a little airplane. Great. But the aesthetics are outstanding. Right. And that process of going from, you know, a non-degreed uh, guy who's interested in designing airplanes to Bert's key designer, uh, a lot of that comes, uh, design and build your airplane is a way to do that. And uh, I always, I, I think the timeline doesn't quite line up, but I always thought of that as being a critical moment uh, for Corey uh, in, in proving himself within that organization and, um, and, and adding the pretty to the designs that uh, if Bert had control of it, they'd be pretty rough because Bert is so focused on, you know, getting it out quick and cost and, you know, what, what, what's the minimum that we need? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, again, anytime you see these, you've flown some crazy planes. And even when you see some of these other Burt Rattan designs, the ones that have always caught my eye, Boomerang, Grizzly, hanging out at, you know, parked on the side uh, over there at Oshkosh, you see these and you can't help but ask yourself, what did they fly like, you know? Why aren't there how, dozens how of these or hundreds of these in the sky or like what? Because yeah. they're so crazy. Um, and so yeah. you, you're someone, maybe not on those two designs, but on so many of these, you get to see what these things fly like when someone draws something that's pretty wacky. 
And I think that that was one of the most important compromises that Bert was able to make, but most airplane designers aren't able to make, which is to, to say, we can just throw anything to do with the pilot away. Cause my best friend, Mike Melville is going to be flying it and he's a bad man pajama. So I'm not worried about it. Right. So uh, like Proteus was super light and pitch and obnoxiously heavy and roll. Right. So we've spent most of the time flying that thing on autopilot just from a handling standpoint. Uh, White Knight two, um, similarly when it's slow is really heavy and roll to the point where the guys will actually reach across. They have a stoke in front of them, which is a uh, functions like a stick, but has two handles on it, like a yoke. And they'll actually reach across and grab the other stoke to turn because the stick forces are so high, uh, slow in the pattern, right? Where you're doing all that maneuvering. So, and again, I think that speaks to Bert's genius, right? Uh, most of his airplanes were never going to be flown by a consumer. They were never going to be. So a lot of the stuff is sort of flying wind tunnel models or flying desk models of a concept. And so if you're looking for stuff to get rid of, that's expensive. Handling qualities can be expensive. So it can like uh, uh, fuel management, right? Proteus has 15 fuel tanks, if I remember correctly. And you're manually moving fuel between them on an eight-hour flight. Does wow. that make sense anywhere except for where you have a tremendous relationship and respect and willingness to give responsibility to your test pilots? No. And that's yeah, why yeah, – Right, I, right. I want to make sure we get a couple other pictures up here, uh, just because for for just because for the record, and also because um, it, it looks like you're 12 years old. But um, yeah, that's a particularly young looking Elliot. Sorry about that. <laughs> Where's this picture from? Uh, so that's uh, flying with uh, Mike Melville in uh, Proteus. Um, trying to think of good stuff to talk about. So then, if you notice, well, you, go ahead. Oh, you can go go back for that one. Yep. Um, I, I, uh, so first of all, you notice that, uh, there's space behind the seats, uh, behind yep. Mike, there's a, there's a, like a, it looks like a cupboard and it has some computer stuff in it. The reason why the pull, uh, pressure bulkhead is not up against the back of the seats is because the idea was because you're flying for 15 hours that you could find young, uh, brand newly issued commercial pilots that would be willing to fly this thing in order to just build time. And so you'd put two guys in it and they would alternate flying responsibilities and the other guy would sleep. So they moved the pressure bulkhead back so the guy could lay down and sleep. And that's why there was all that space behind the seat. There was, um, two occasions in the 200 hours of flying Proteus that I have where we had to go back there and mess with the, the computers back there we use for data logging, et cetera. There was, and there's a keyboard and a mouse. And two occasions I had to go back there. And so the idea of, uh, well, there's a slight space between Mike and I there, right? So you have to fit through that space. So if you're going to keep parachute on your back, it's going to be harder. So you probably want to leave the parachute in the seat. And you're probably going to end up disconnecting your uh, headset. And then you're standing, the door is kind of almost on the bottom of the fuselage. So you're not standing on the door if you can help it, but you might accidentally stand on the door. And you're flying around in a carbon fiber, you know, um, hand-built airplane at 50,000 feet that was designed to fly 100 hours and you're now into hour 2,257. You're like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, the, uh, um, above Mike's head, you can see that insulation. Um, that insulation is the only thing between you and the carbon fiber that's touching uh, a free stream air at 50,000 feet, cold. Uh, it's expensive. Well, I mean, it's expensive compared to some things. So there's not any on the right side of the fuselage. Uh, when we start, first started flying, later we put it in on the right side of the fuselage. So one of the big things you had to do before you took off, uh, usually the night before, was try to get a feel for which pilot you were flying with and whether he was going to wear long johns. Because if he was going to wear long johns, then you needed to wear like two pairs of long johns because you were going to be colder than him whatever worked out. <laughs> now the sections of the airplane that where that insulation wasn't actual frost would form. And you fly with uh, Brian Benny. He was famous for bringing an ice cream sandwich and he could bring an ice cream sandwich from home frozen and it wouldn't melt before he got airborne. And he would set it on the floor of the airplane in one of the spots where the insulation wasn't and it would stay frozen until, you know, four or five hours in the flight when you feel like you need a, a little sweet treat and it was ready to go. <laughs> Fresh enough uh, making ice cream up there at Alto, dude. Um, uh, you likewise, have Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you had, you had another one here also that's a big, proud shot of White Knight. Yeah, I, um, I typically don't pluck this photo. And um, when I sent it to you yesterday, I realized that I was thinking of the story wrong. So that, um, that photo looks like I worked on Spaceship. And that's why I never wanted to show the photo, because I didn't want to claim that I was working on Spaceship. And what that moment is actually was, um, because I was walking up and down the ramp, like we talked about, trying to get connected at scale, I got recognized and people knew what I was trying to do. And one of the guys told me, he's like, hey, they're having an open house today. 
at scale and the spaceship's going to be there. Just show up at such and such a time. And I did. And this is that day. And I got to walk in and put my hand on a spaceship underneath the white knight, the airplane that I eventually got to work on. Um, and most importantly, you know, we talk about this great moment. I got the photo, whatever. I had my notebook and I wrote down the name of everybody I met at that party. <laughs> so that I, could, I could come back as an employee instead of as a uh, visitor. So. Well, hey, there's there's nothing wrong with having a fan shot there. It makes makes <laughs> you just like everybody else, uh, without a doubt. Now, it was a good day. Fast forward from that, and you designed your your own aircraft. I mean, you 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 got into the racing. You did that, and this is this is the one you you designed. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so I uh, we sort of got lucky earlier talking about Corey Bird. Um, that, that path of designing and building your own airplane to get uh, more responsibility at work, doing the same kind of stuff at work uh, is exactly what we're looking at here. So um, I was uh, crewing for John Sharp. Uh, John had come from the formula class. Uh, I wanted to uh, take over racing John's airplane. That was all I wanted in the world. And I needed to prove to him that I was a, uh, a good race pilot and I wanted to be a test pilot at scale. And that required both of which required flying, you know, Bad little airplanes. So uh, I went and bought a Cassett project, got the plane flying, did the flight test on it, took it, raced it at Reno. And the thing happens when you come back from Reno is your, your fangs are still hanging out. You're still foaming at the mouth because you're like, you know, you're trying to catch the guy. You were three mile an hour short or whatever the story is. And uh, I'm like, okay, how are we going to go fast? And it was a, a real a watershed moment for me to realize that I could take a Cassett and I, you know, we put a new cowling on it, but I could put, you know, another new cowling on it and I could figure out how to build a good motor and I could build a wing for it. And each one of these mods would be a year, a year, a year, right? And when I was all done, I would have a brand new airplane that I had done all this flight testing on and learned all the things that the world thinks I need to know in order to be a test pilot, but I would never have actually checked the box. I realized if we just throttle back, we just take that cassette back from burner to idle and slide it over in the other side of the hangar and start from scratch on a brand new airplane. Even if a year from now or three years from now, I decide I don't care anything about formula anymore and the landscape has changed or a different place I want to go, I will have had that experience in the book. I will have designed, built, and flight tested an airplane from zero. And wow. uh, it, was a hard, it was a hard decision. Uh, my now wife at the time girlfriend is standing there next to the left wing uh, in that photo, and she was there with me for the whole thing. Uh, she started working at Scaled. Yeah, there she is. Uh, that's Jennifer. She started working a bit Scaled about the time I decided to uh, do this project, and she was right there with me. So uh, we would uh, Scaled works a ten-hour day, or uh, it was uh, anyway. So Scaled works ten-hour day, and we'd go home and uh, go to the hangar. We lived, you know, uh, half a block from the hangar, so that we could walk to the hangar. You know, I didn't have to have a car. I had a 1965 Ford Falcon that ran a lot of the time and I didn't need it. I could walk, you know, just like we we're talking about walking down the ramp. I could walk everywhere. So if the car broke down, I didn't have to fix it. I could focus on building the airplane. So we would work. It was, uh, we averaged 40 hours a week at scaled and then 40 hours a week each in the hangar, making that thing happen. Um, wow. And we were doing that. We were able to get it done in two years. Uh, also with significant help from everybody in the airport. So we talked earlier about that photo of me sitting with Mike. Um, there's a magic thing that happens uh, when you go from being an outside observer in a place like Mojave to being in it. And that's when you realize that um, you can't just ask Mike again, what's it, what's it like to go to space? Right. Like you can't, like, that's not the question, right. There's like, that's not, that's the very, like, it's not even a question. Like you want to know the rest of it. Tell me the rest of it. And so in a lot of ways, what this airplane ended up being was my um, uh, multiple choice test to all the things that I wanted to know, right? You go home and you scratch your head and you hit your head against the wall and you yell, and you know, Jennifer and I yell at each other about what the right path forward is. And then you have a great question to come in tomorrow and ask somebody about it, right? And, mm. and these, ask the experts. Uh, there was a design problem. I don't, I don't know that you pulled the photo, but if you have any of the photos of the mold when it was in black. Uh, I, I don't think I have that one. Um, there was a moment where we, so basically the, the fuselage was the first thing we did. So I built a, a cockpit mock-up and figured out how much space I needed. And then I took the engine off my cassette and I hung it off the fast, the front of this cockpit mock-up. And then we just started piling foam on it to make a shape. The idea being I could CAD model an airplane at work. If I was ever going to hand form an airplane like Corey Bird built Symmetry, if I was ever going to have that, that experience, now was the time. Because I saw myself working as an engineer for the rest of my career. I figured I'd design lots of airplanes in CAD. This was my chance to run a standing block. 
I had been working on it. I mean, this, this thing haunted me. I worked on it. it. It took a year to get that plug right, that fuselage plug. Well, when I was done, it weighed the better part of a thousand pounds. Yeah, this here you can see the line. So if you see that body line, it's the most distinguishing part of the airplane. There's a body line that comes from the bottom of the spinner and it goes around the top of the wing. Yeah. Um, I had the plug sitting there. So that's a 700 pound pile of plaster and Bondo with my engine buried inside of it, suspended on uh, sawhorses you know, uh, 10 inches off of a sawhorse. So it's up at working height, right? The cockpit's kind of up here and you can kind of walk around it and you can grind on it and make it happen. And um, I was destroying my hangar. So I had a dust booth that I built out of Visqueen that was three foot behind, behind the airplane on all sides. There was enough room for me to work. And I brought Corey Bird, right? Scale Composites, best designer. And nobody had known that I was working on this. And I was a big deal. I was like, Corey, do you mind? Like, I need some help. And he came down to the hangar. And I, I had something else I was showing him that I had a question about. And Corey came in and he said, that body line doesn't work. And what I had done is that line that went from the bottom of the spinner, it just sort of disappeared right in front of the wing. And then there was a separate line that started at my shoulder and kind of went down. He said, you've got to connect these lines. And the problem was I'd been standing three feet away from it and I'm a moron. So I didn't know. It. And I happened to have, like, I could just go to the, the best in the world and bring him down to my silly program. Like who gets that opportunity? And that, that is such a critical part of it. Like there's a big ego thing. Like I designed and built my own airplane and I didn't use uh, just off the shelf uh, airfoils because I, you know, did went to, like you can make it into a big ego thing. And I never, the, the goal was not whatever, I'm a jerk like everybody else, but the goal was not that. The goal was to, to have the experience to figure out what were the stupid questions. I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm not an aero engineer. So there's a bunch of stuff that I just had never even seen. And like, besides, you know, just reading the book, falling asleep, you know, at night, trying to remember to write, this forced me to go, why is that equation important? Just like, uh, just like, and just like your son, you know, with the A and P, right? It's the same thing. Like, why is the problem important? Okay, now let's go figure out that theory. Let's figure out, you know, how an airfoil actually works. Let's figure out how stability works. So I make any how sense? much of that was the artistic side? Because, I mean, you're talking about the, you know, like you said, you came out of mechanical engineering, not necessarily aero and structures at that time, uh, or, or the aerodynamic side, although I'm sure you were really well versed in it to some degree. But how do you go from that and, and blend what is the carving in the shop of what, just feels right and has the art of it to the right. structural side of that and the aerodynamics. So, did you, did you, did you take everything that you finished with and then run it in a, run it, run it through finite test or run it in a tunnel? What did you do? So, so everything was done do, doing the simplest of methods. Again, the assumption was that in an environment like scaled or uh, an aerospace engineering job, the, the state of the art, the F-35 solution, I was going to have that opportunity. What I wasn't going to have was the opportunity to do just like basic, you know, napkin, uh, you know, selecting the right airfoil based on CL max and drag bucket, or, you know, picking a uh, wing area based on, you know, aspect ratio, tail volume, all, all those things, right? I wasn't going to have the, that chance to do that the simple way, the, uh, the old school way, home built way. And so that was what this was, was a chance to do uh, all those things. The artistic side, the structural side, I was, uh, before I came to scale, I'd never done anything with composites. I was doing carbon fiber design at work. And so I had to learn it for that. But this was like, you know, we did a major mod on White Knight, uh, which required a lot of uh, composite uh, design and structures work and then uh, making the parts, et cetera. And you know, to be perfectly honest, I used a lot of what I got comfortable with on that program on this. But, mm. uh, but it's one thing to uh, use the scaled shop with their vacuum pump and their uh, heat blankets and their oven and their resin and their acetone and their, right? And then to do it in your hangar and you have to say, well, is this clean enough is this is this the right you know that's the heat blanket they use that you know i got this vacuum pump is that enough right and to work your way through it or you know come in after oh, this happened two times where you come in the next morning and the the thing you had built to heat the airplane with i shouldn't say what it was because it's embarrassing had collapsed and the tool had burned all night uh like black spots like oh. scrapping like i never spent so much money in my life you know a roll of carbon fiber at the time where i was paying like $3,200 for a uh, uh, 100-yard roll of 282 weed. Like, and this is, uh, you know, skin, core, inside skin, and then another skin, core, inside skin, because you got all the overlapping joints and everything. And then, you know, heat lamp falls. It was, I just acknowledged it. Heat lamp falls on the airplane in the middle of the night and burns a hole through the park. Like, what are we going to do now, right? Um, so now, so just like you would have in a real engineering situation, right? Um, I would say, okay, well, 
how bad's the damage? You know, can we can we count on that structure? If we can't count on it, uh, can we repair it? If we can repair it, what can we take the new structure to? And, and, and do we have to add more plies because we can't get the structure out of it because we can't post cure? Blah 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 blah. This is just a this is a, a second another opportunity. So I'm working 40 hours at work trying to figure out how to be a good engineer, and I'm working 40 hours in my hangar trying to figure out how to be a good engineer and just trying to do as fast as I can to, to create a microwave to, to generate these skills uh, with with flight tests uh, on the horizon. Amazing. Am I rambling that? No, this is fantastic. And you know, it, it also reminds me, there's a, there's a, a, a book that I, I love and both my boys love is speed with efficiency. And uh, yes, uh, absolutely. That's, that's it. That's exactly it. You're right where I'm talking about. 1000%. Sorry, I stopped you. Please introduce it. Oh, no, no. I just, just, you know, if anyone's out there, just a great book. I'm trying, God, it's killing me that I can't remember the author right off the top of my head. Is um, it uh, Kent Pacer? Is that right? Yes, that's it. Kent Pacer, um, uh, P-A-S-E-R. And uh, it's a I recommend Mustang two? Uh, he, yeah, actually, I think it was an RV3 or something that he did. Maybe it was a Mustang. But he just, again, same thing. Refine, experiment, refine, experiment. And God, I mean, what was it? Like and 60? to that point, if you read that book, there is no question that guy is a as big of a stud out there as there is, but when he taxis up to the pumps, the data plate on the side of the airplane says Mustang two. And that was, right. that was the whole deal, right? That, that was exactly, it's still the exact same plane, even though he is light years ahead of, of right. anything, put something like 60 miles an hour on an air. Uh, right, right. Or like, uh, have you seen uh, Dave Anders uh, RV four? Uh, I have not, but I'm going to now. <laughs> uh. Same thing, right? Like, so you walk up the airplane, and you're like, oh, it's an RV4. Well, it's like, and I'm uh, hi- trying to remember it. I haven't thought about this, you know, in a day or two, but um, I think he's like cruising 60 mile an hour faster than any other RV4 on the planet, right? Like uh, every detail, he's figured it out. And it's not just like, there's a lot in aerospace and I don't need to tell you or your listeners, but there's a lot in aerospace where you're like, well, I did a mod, so it must be faster. Well, how fast is it? Well, the, the increments between the, you know, the two lines on my airspeed indicator are 15 mile an hour apart. So I think it's about 15 mile an hour faster, right? That is very common in aerospace. But in a situation like uh, speed with efficiency or Dave Anders, right? They're, they're, you're going out and they're making the mistake and then they're coming back in and, and, and they're working that cycle. The design, build, test, loop, right? Which is what right. I fell in love with at scale. And the only difference between what was happening at scale and what's happening when Anders shop or with Kent Pacer is just the scale of it. Scaled. Wow, that's terrible. Um, the scale of the problem, right? I mean, yeah. there's a little bit of a difference between Spaceship One and an RB4. But other than that, it's the same, it's the same deal. And it's why home building's cool and little airplanes are cool and all that. So so tell me how the story ended on this plane. This kind of like first love of your life that created all this stuff. <laughs> um yeah, created all that stuff is exactly the the most important part of it. So um, uh, we created that. We did the airplane. Um, I think we did a reasonable job telling the story of building the airplane and releasing it. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of that we did with it is we changed the conversation. So the problem with a racer or a record-setting airplane is you've defined yourself by the mission. So if you are not the fastest racer, if you have not set all the records, then you have no value in the community. The first thing that we did was change the script. So we flew. At Reno, we did that. Uh, as an engineer, I was focused on uh, presenting myself as a conservative test pilot rather than all, you know, no holes barred, we're going to win this thing. And so you get done with it. People are like, what is this guy doing? I don't understand because they, they're expecting you to be a racer. So what did we do? We came out of that and we flew the airplane nonstop from Mojave to Oshkosh. This is an airplane that's designed to do eight laps on a three-mile course. And we flew it for 10 and well, 11 hours uh, nonstop from Mojave to Oshkosh. Again, we changed the conversation, right? And again, it allowed me to have a new design problem with the airplane. We had to put oxygen in it. I had to put an electrical system in it. It's a total loss electrical system in the racer. So I put an alternator on it so I'd have electrical power to get all the way out there. Um, I put a relief tube in it. And then we had to find uh, space for 50-some gallons of gas that it was going to require to take it there. Uh, anyway, it was a great little thing to do. Uh, that, uh, that allowed us to have a goal and then uh, some modification, learn some stuff and go get it. What that ends up happening is we start to get some inertia and uh, the dream, it's the, the whole dream, right, is a uh, flight test. At this point, it was all I could think about. Um, uh, the, we started picking up flight test gigs, so paid gigs. And um, I had the opportunity to fly Dale Greenemeyer's uh, Lancer Legacy uh, and be a part of that program. With that, we set uh, time to climb and three kilometer records. We went back earlier. We were talking about John Sharp setting three kilometer record. This is the coolest thing on the planet. I got to do it twice. I set it in two different weight categories. That was the biggest distraction from my silly little formula that there could be on the planet. 
Um, okay, so you're showing the siren right now, yeah. So that's race okay. 44. That was one of two sister ships, uh, Daryl Greenemeyer's race 33 and Lynn Farnsworth's race 44 uh, that we, that I got to work on for a while with a team called, uh, w with a team, uh, that did a bunch of engine work and, uh, airframe modifications to those airplanes. And that culminated with, uh, setting, uh, three kilometer records and time to climb records to, uh, 3000 meters, roughly 10,000 feet, uh, and was literally, uh, some of the most rewarding stuff I've done in aviation. So backing up, right. We were talking about the kid, uh, he's back in Michigan and he's reading about uh, Lyle Shelton and Daryl Greenemeyer, right? And we're just reading about, you know, uh, it's, it's after the races and they had an engine problem uh, in, in the goal race. And he had just enough time to squeak off test flight over uh, Reno. And he went up and tested ADI and uh, everything was running good. But then the engine failed. I'm in a situation where the coolest airplane on the planet, uh, you know, at this point, John had retired from racing. So the, N the NXT wasn't racing. The sport class was being dominated by the Lance Airs. And in my opinion, the, the most impressive team out there was asking me, they would, you know, I'd be in my little formula pit and they'd start coming by at like four o'clock because the airport opens up, I think five or six. I'm like, hey, Elliot, uh, we got, we put a new fuel pump in. Uh, we set the changes of settings on the fuel regulator. Uh, do you mind uh, swinging by and just, just squeak a flight off real quick? And I'm like, and I'm like, you know, wrenching. I'm like, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll see if I can get to it. And like, meanwhile, like I'm, it's just the coolest thing that has ever happened in my life. And like, as soon as they're out of, out of shot, like I've got my checklist out, I've got my, you know, I'm going, getting my head right in the game to go fly this thing. Uh, so what ended up happening being, uh, that was a real distraction, uh, from, uh, Wasabi from the siren. And, uh, and then, um, we just end up getting more and more flight test work that, uh, that pulled us away from it. So, uh, now we're in a situation where, um, I got, uh, I got two kids and a mortgage and uh, the idea of dumping all the money I have into a race motor so I can blow it up after four laps on the, on the little course of Reno. Uh, I have a little bit more trouble convincing Jen that's the right path. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm not going to let you get away tonight without showing a little bit of your family here because uh, we'll, we'll be back for more. So you, you mentioned that, right? This is this. Yeah. This. <laughs> So that's uh, Ezra on the left looking not so happy and then uh, Gid on the right uh, trying to make the same face as dad. So uh, Ezra's now two and Gid's four and there's Gid. <laughs> uh, they're uh, both really into monster trucks and dinosaurs right now. So uh, airplane, gas money, airplane gas money gets pointed at those purchases. Um, but, but yeah, <laughs> there's good again. The, um, the result being that, uh, we really tried to make Wasabi into more of a, uh, of a business rather than, um, a hobby or something we do for fun. I, I don't need to tell you, you've, you've been through it, but, uh, kids are expensive. That phase in your life, uh, there's a lot of other expenses out there. So if I'm going to be flying airplanes, it needs to be a profit center, uh, for, for me. And so the building the Wasabi company in order to do, uh, to, to make that profitable uh, has been my focus uh, since walking away from Wasabi. The last time I raced Wasabi was uh, 2014, something like that. Uh, right, and so right. since then, it's just been focused on uh, flight test. So. Yeah, and flight test is, is obviously so much of what people watch on, uh, with everything that you do on YouTube. It's obviously big, you know, it, it's, it's your income right now and the work that you're doing helps so many companies and put all those skills to use. Um, as we are, of course, at the end of our hour, what I would love is there's so much to talk about, about Wasabi and about flight testing, both for the folks who may be doing experimental, maybe building something uh, uh, like, a, like a little thing behind us here. Um, or, speaking. Uh, yeah, yeah, speaking like this thing I want to get out of my house um, yeah. or uh, the, yeah, finished, finished out of my house. Um, <laughs> or, uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you know, the certified aircraft and, and, you know, there's so much to talk about. I hope you'll come back and join us again for kind of part two of this adventure. Uh, Jeff, I, I really appreciate you uh, reaching out for this whole thing and let me yammer at you for the last hour. Um, I feel like I was rambling and not making a whole lot of sense. So appreciate you at least smiling at me while it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite. I think I speak for everyone who's been on this uh, uh, on our show tonight at Social Flight Live that quite the opposite. We want to stay here for like another three hours if we had it. Um, and well, it, I'd be happy to come back. It's fascinating. I would love to do that. Let's have another part. Let's talk about so many other things that you do because they're so critical to people understanding the world of general aviation, the world of experimental aviation, and things that really matter because uh, we were just talking about it before as a teaser there. Uh, it, it, even if everyone's just flying their regular general aviation uh, uh, aircraft out there, 
you need to think about yourself as a test pilot in an awful lot of situations, including when you pick it up from, an, uh, from annual, uh, when you do a modification of some kind, even if it's STC or PMA, doesn't matter. Um, but we need to take a different approach here to keep everybody safe. Uh, a thousand percent. And anything I can do to help, uh, yeah, thanks for including me. Absolutely. Well, Elliot Taylor, thank you so, so much for joining us tonight on Social Flight Live. We will make sure that we let everyone know what the date is that you'll be joining us again. And I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us and signing on as you do every week here. Really appreciate it and everything you do to support the industry that we all love so, so much. Next week, we have on January 26th at 8 p.m., Ariel Tweedo from Flying Wild Alaska will be joining us. Get a little bit of a, a look at the different types of flying and, and so many of the adventures that we've seen on the Discovery Channel from her as well. On uh, Tuesday, February 2nd, Mike Bush is back. We're going to talk ignition systems and more. And then on the 9th, we're going to talk backcountry flying with the Recreational Aviation Foundation. We just keep changing the subjects, and by the time we get around there, we'll be ready to go back and test flying. So again, thank you so much, uh, Elliot. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate you letting me come along. Absolutely. For everyone else, I wish you all blue skies.